Hello and welcome to Rocket's Accelerated Geek Conversation. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace. I'm Simone de Rochefort, a senior video producer at Polygon, and I'm here with you today, joined by Christina Warren, senior cloud advocate at Microsoft, and Brianna Wu, executive director of Rebellion Pack and current holder of the world's hoarsest voice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Welcome back, Bree. We're so happy I, you're I back. missed you guys so much. I missed you guys so much. I'm so glad to be back. Oh my gosh. Um, so I wanted to take a minute and tell our listeners why I sound like a golden girl heading into the light today. Oh, no. <laughs> so um, if you can't tell, if you listen to the show, um, at the beginning of the show, I sound one way, and then towards the end of the show, uh, I sound really raspy. And I've been curious about this for a long time. And I went to see a specialist, and they looked at my throat, and they're like, well, you've got some webbing in there, in your vocal cords. And I'm like, oh, that's not good. Um, they're like, we need to put you under. We need to look at it. And they did. And it turns out that uh, while I was campaigning, I literally tore a in my vocal cords, yelling and talking and call timing and doing that all the time. So the surgery itself was very minor. It's just, you know, lasering a hole and suturing it. Uh, But it shocks your vocal cords and your vocal cords have like a, um, uh, it's the tissue. And then there's a, a, um, like a coating on top of it that uh, it makes it resonant. And right now, because my vocal cords are still swollen from surgery, it's why I sound so terrible. So apologies, but I feel great. And I've missed you, uh, Simone and Christina, so yay, much. It's yay, been awful. You too. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm glad that you are on the road yes. to feeling better. I yes. am going to sound so much better. They were like, how have you been talking? <laughs> like, Every, like weekly. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Professionally. That's crazy. All right. Well, let's get into the show tonight. We have, uh, as always, a super exciting show for you. We're going to be talking about some Web 3. I- I'll say a drama, even though it's more like well-thought-out argumentation and discussion of principles. But we're going to call it drama for the the, the clicks. <laughs> <laughs> and some uh, app drama. We're going to be talking about everything that's gone on with Wordle and the App Store this week. And then wrapping it up with a good old discussion of DRM, everyone's favorite invention. But let's get off. Let's start right off the bat with the juiciest topic, as we always do. Moxie Marlinspike, the creator of Signal, has published a blog detailing his own experiments with the crypto space. Uh, he de- he describes himself as being, you know, kind of initially ambivalent to it and wanting to understand more about it. So he conducted some experiments. Uh, first, he created two distributed apps, and then he also created an NFT. Uh, the apps were an app called Autonomous Artists that let people mint tokens for NFTs by making their own Uh, visual contributions and that cost of minting increased over time and the funds were distributed to all previous artists who had participated Uh, at the time of publication that had generated $38,000. The other app was called First Derivative and it essentially mirrored financial derivatives except with NFTs. Uh, The NFT that Marlon Spike created was one that changed appearance depending on where it was being viewed from. So it looked one way in OpenSea and one way in Rarible, uh, essentially the sort of fractal-like figure uh, with a lot of intersecting lines. And then it looked a different way 
in your crypto wallet. It looked like the poop emoji. (laughs) Uh, His conclusions after mucking around in the space for a while and just seeing how how the apps were built and how they how clients could interface with them and what happened with the with the NFT uh, was that the crypto space is already organizing around centralized platforms for the sake of ease of use. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the case of the NFT, uh, it actually got removed from OpenSea, though he wasn't sure what TOS it violated because uh, it had been clear that it was an NFT that changed depending on where you viewed it from. Um, And Moxie found that when it was removed from OpenSea, it was also no longer visible in his crypto wallet because the wallet was making API calls to open C to see what NFTs were owned. It was not communicating directly with the blockchain because it turns out there's no true easy way or no way really possible for phones to interface with the blockchain. So they use unsigned calls through platforms like Infura or Alchemy or Etherscan or OpenSea to simplify the whole process um, in a way that kind of mirrors how Web1 coalesced around the platforms that we know today rather than around individual servers uh, operated by users. Um, That's my overall summary of it. There's going to be a lot to get into in the discussion that we're going to have. But Marlon Spike's conclusion was that kind of twofold. Ultimately, the people who are profiting off of the gold rush right now don't necessarily care about the stated goal of decentralization they're working with what they've got and they're thriving in that space. Um, and that if we truly want to change people's relationship with tech, the two most important things that Merlin Spike has identified are the acceptance of the fact that no one wants to run their own servers. We want someone else to do it for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that reducing the burden of building software will make the space more accessible for uh, for the kind of people who, like right now, can't really interact with the blockchain at all and would prefer to go through a centralized platform, which is essentially what (laughs) against the ethos of the whole project. Uh, So that that's my big, big wrap up of the blog post. Uh, What were y'all's reactions to to reading the post? What were your thoughts on it? I thought it was a really, really great blog post. I, I I tweeted about it when I saw it. It hit the front page of Hacker News. It, front, it hit the top of Tech Meme. Like everybody was talking about it um, because uh, Moxie, who uh, he uh, he just stepped down as the the CEO of Signal, which he's been running for a really long time, um, but he's obviously still heavily involved in that, and and so he is. Somebody who, um, you know, by his own admission, like he, you know, considers himself a cryptographer, but hasn't really been uh, historically drawn into, into crypto in in the same way that a lot of the other boosters have been. D- despite it's weird now, there's been this sort of weird backlash to, to Moxie because there have been some like uh, like crypto uh, coin aspect things that that have been tied into to Signal. So like people almost want to be like, oh well, you can't even trust what his whole response to this thing is because he's been involved. And it's like okay. This guy actually really does know about, you know, like cryptography and um, and and signal is proof of that. Uh, And all of his, I think, analysis was really astute, especially kind of that last bit that you were talking about where, you know, um, this is. Uh, where, where a lot of people who are making money about this don't care about the underlying principles that that Web three is is purporting to to care about, which I think is is some of the most in, important aspect of of a lot of this. 
Um, I, so I thought it was a really, really good analysis. Uh, uh, Vitalik, uh, I, I don't know his last name, uh, the the guy who uh, created Ethereum and, and, and smart contracts um, uh, responded. And his response, a lot of it was kind of being like, yeah, you're you're not wrong, but we're working on these things, and 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 this is why we won't immediately fall into all of these these problems. Um, and I was glad to see that response, but it also kind of feels like there's at a certain point, like for with a lot of the and I and my and I actually think Vitalik uh, compared to a lot of the other kind of you know big kind of boosters in this space is is more sane. A lot of these people, anytime you bring up any sort of critique, they immediately have like an answer or an excuse for everything. Um, and it, but it does feel like okay, if if the whole thing is the only way this is working right now is that people are 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 already like converging on the centralized aspects of it. Mm-hmm. How decentralized is this ever going to be? Like putting aside whether or not this is a viable, you know, future thing to look at, which. I personally think it is interesting, but like, like how, how, how different is this really other than just, you know, like yet another kind of gold rush place if everybody is really just centralizing on everything anyway. Uh, One of the things I really appreciated overall about his post was that it showed, it it showed a genuine interest in the technology and a, a willingness to entertain its premise but also a very generous allowance for what I think is is human nature and the fact that we do gravitate towards these ease of access methods. Uh, we do gravitate towards a frictionless experience. It's kind of what we've been led to expect and that mm-hmm. it's very difficult to it's going that's going to be something that is going to be the major um a, Block, why <laughs> block? <laughs> ah, the block in the blockchain. Bree, what was your reaction to it? No, it was it was exactly the same as yours, uh, Simone. Um, I I think this really puts kind of the history of the web into a, a lot of perspective. Like you know, those of us that were there from the beginning, I think we remember you know hacking together HTML and getting our very first web page running, and then you know. Kind of this move to to places like Facebook or GeoCities, you know, uh, the kind of what he calls, uh, you know, moving from hosting your own server to you know basically hosted platforms, and then really examining the the I, I don't want to say propaganda because I feel like there's too much of a value judgment with that, but really. It, examining this proposition from web three components that it's really going to represent a decentralized future for the web and Mm -hmm. really asking fundamentally how true that is with the current technology. And he goes through a list, a whole bunch of examples of how it's just not decentralized. uh, The things that we currently have, Uh, you know, he builds a product. uh, Basically they tear the product down. He builds another product. uh, They decide not to run it. It magically disappears from his wallet. It's a whole bunch of examples of how ultimately you, you have platforms again mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in really examining this gold rush. Simone, as you said, it's a really honest, non-judgmental 
really thoughtful um, examination of Web3 uh, in a way that I think it went viral because I think it it had a lot of truth in it. I think for a lot of us, you know, we read the Twitter conversations about this and it's like, rare cryptocurrency, yeah. you know, all of that. <laughs> and I, I will admit to being part of that. This was a lot more reflective and thoughtful, you know, basically asking like, is the promise of Web3 true? Does it have the mm-hmm. capability to ever be true? And to me, it really um, it strikes me as very similar to uh, the discussion we've been having about NFTs because it's kind of it's kind of assuming there's going to be this future with interoperability with all of these assets when it's always going to be in these individual platform owners' mm-hmm. uh, best interest to kind of centralize it, right? So I, yeah. I I think it really put into focus for a lot of us why we're so cynical about this this move. Yeah, and I, I was heartened to see as I was reading through that Reddit thread, like there there were definitely like the detractors of the post. Uh, and there, but there were also people, you know, who were involved in Web three, who were saying like, "This is this is very measured." I appreciate mm-hmm. like your perspective on this and your assessment of what the problems are, and that was it was heartening to see people respond positively. Uh, I my reaction to Vitalik's response was it, it, it was definitely he was definitely like being you know that just as measured as Marlon Spike was, but. Boy, the list of options that he provided for ways that people could access the blockchain, Mm -hmm. to me, (laughs) completely inaccessible. Right. Absolutely beyond my reach in every sense of the word. And and, and also most of them completely centralized. Like his very first thing is to use a Binance account. Okay, well, like... That that right there. Um, it- Should I actually read the list? Do you want me to? Yeah, yeah. All right. Okay. Um, so the fo- these are the these are some of the following ways that a user could connect to the blockchain: use a Binance account, run a piece of code that asks the Infura API endpoint what the blockchain state is, trust the answer. However, keys are still kept locally. The code signs transactions locally and sends them to the Infura API endpoint to be rebroadcasted. Three. Same as two, but the code also runs a light client to verify the signatures on the block headers and uses Merkle proofs to verify individual account and storage data. Four, same as three, but the code talks to N different API endpoints run by N different companies, so only one of them need to be providing honest answers for the connection to be reliable. Five, same as four, but instead of pre-specifying N API endpoints to the code, uh, connects directly to a P2P network. Six, same as five, but the code also does data availability sampling and accepts fraud proofs so it can detect and refuse to accept blocks that are invalid. Seven, run a fully verifying node. Eight, run a fully verifying node that also participates in mining slash staking. None of those things are things that I have any interest in 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 doing simply so that I can access a piece of technology that might be right. interesting. Right. And in fact, the only one that really is at this point kind of accessible would be number one, which is have a Binance account. And yep. and there's nothing wrong with and that. And he does point that out. He does point right. that out. That like seven yes. and eight are too expensive for most users. Only one to seven and eight are actually feasible. Right. Um, 
So, right. Fair enough. It, it, exactly. And, and and I think, but but that just shows that already, you know, like that, that's coalescing on kind of a central authority, which is okay. Um, I mean, I, th- I think that his point, and obviously this is the whole concept of smart contracts, um, which he pioneered, is that he, he wants to get to those those other states mm-hmm. where you could potentially sign up for one of those things, and it could it could be you know checking against a bunch of other authorities and see if, if that's accurate or not uh, to, to then you know let you through. And and I, I do feel like there is. There is something to that, like, and and I do feel like there will be probably some sort of commercialized aspect of that at some point. The, the problem, I mean, it is a chicken and the egg thing, but but as as Moxie points out, it's like, okay, well, you know, but but how how do you get this in a place where people don't want to run and manage their own servers? So mm-hmm. how do you have all those disparate systems, I guess, kind of existing so that you can even get that smart contract aspect working? It, it it's a it's a difficult problem, um, mm-hmm. but but it is one that. Yeah, I mean, to 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 your point, I was glad he was conciliatory in the response, and he wasn't dismissing it. He just, you know, uh, the the answer always seems to be like, okay, well, this is this is true now, but soon we'll have all this other stuff. Yeah. And and it was interesting. In there were some Twitter discussions people were having with him too, and people were saying, well, okay, you keep saying soon, you know, why why hasn't this happened until now? And he says, oh, well, you know, until 2018, the problem was funding, and now. They have so much money, and it's like, okay, well, now the problem is time. And I kind of go, mm, is the is the problem time? Because obviously, it is going to take time for them mm-hmm. to actually come up with some of these solutions. Granted, but you also have to, at least me being the cynicistic question: Do you care when you have all this money and when you do have pe- these people building these solutions, whether they're really decentralized or not? Do you care if this ecosystem is exploding? You know, and and you're making and you have all this money and this value. Do you do you care to really solve those hard problems mm-hmm. or or have those incentives kind of disappeared a little bit? And I feel like from a tech literacy standpoint, like even as we do become increasingly tech literate with each year and each generation, this is <laughs> it's it's a lot to ask of people to care about for for something where where I think maybe even the intrinsic value of a trustless decentralized system is, is is something that you really have to you have to make the sell about why should we care about this and right now as we've seen a lot of people are looking at it and going well i care about it because i i could make a lot of money there mm-hmm. to, to sell the ordinary person on why this is valuable and why we need to work towards these increasingly complex methods to access the blockchain. It, it, I think it's a really hard sell. It's going to be an uphill battle. Uh, Bree, did you want to say something? No, I think that's really well said, uh, Simone. I also think, you know what this really reminds me of, Christina? App.net, where, yeah. you know, we're on app.net. And the thing that, the, the real selling point it's like the real feature of app.net and the reason we all enjoyed it is we are talking to devs and other really tech-heavy people, right? It was a very focused conversation that was frankly great for networking. Uh, everyone I know personally that I'm, I was friends with on app.net went on to do some really cool stuff. Um but Dalton and his vision of app.net was always, this is going to be a decentralized platform. We are not going to develop a client and all these people are going to come and, and do this. And that was a vision that was very important to tech people. 
right. They really cared about that. What what I cared about was the end user experience. And because mm-hmm. they had not thought enough through that part of it, the entire system failed. And I just don't believe 99.999% of people out there give a frack about any of this decentralization stuff. I just don't think it's important to them at all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think the gold rush is important to them. So, no, I, yeah. yeah. No, I, I totally agree. And the last thing I'll add to that is, um, you know, in P- P- the early Web2 pioneers have pointed this out, that Web2, a lot of it was based on decentralization as well and, and was certainly not about having power congregated uh, across a couple of companies. That was that was not the plan. You know, it, tools like RSS and having open APIs and SDKs and things like that. And in fact, actually, as Web2.0 became more successful, things became more concentrated and more siloed. But originally, the whole idea was interoperability. And, um, and so um, Jim Barksdale, so this actually goes back to Web1.0, who was the CEO of Netscape. I've, I've, I've quoted this line before, but I'll quote it again because I think about it. I'm, I'm not even joking, at least once a day. Um, when he was CEO of Netscape, he, he made the comment that there were only two businesses in the world, bundling and unbundling. And I mm-hmm. think about that all the time because as we've discussed here, you know, I don't think that it is any coincidence that some of the most successful crypto-related companies like Coinbase, like Binance, um, uh, like crypto.com who got the naming rights to the Staples Center which will always be the Staples Center but whatever <laughs> are central authorities are centralizing something that is you know decidedly decentralized and um but but I do feel like he is right there are two business models bundling and unbundling so I'll leave it at that yep this episode of rocket is brought to you by Squarespace Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build your online presence and run your business From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, they've got you covered. Squarespace combines cutting-edge design and world-class engineering, making it easier than ever to establish your home online and make your ideas a reality. Squarespace has everything you need to create a beautiful and modern website. You start with a professionally designed template and use drag-and-drop tools to make it your own. You can customize the look and feel, the settings, the products that you have on sale, and more with just a few clicks. And all Squarespace websites are optimized for mobile. Your content will automatically adjust so it looks great on any device. This is so important. Ah! You'll also get free unlimited hosting, top-of-the-line security, and dependable resources to help you succeed. There's nothing to patch or upgrade. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They'll even let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name. Plus, you'll have everything you need for SEO and email marketing to get your ideas out there. You can use Squarespace to, oh, I don't know, turn your big idea into a new website, showcase your work with their incredible portfolio designs, publish your next blog post, promote your business, announce an upcoming event, and so much more. I love mucking around with Squarespace. I love, truly, as a person with uh, limited web design potential, the ability to create websites that look freaking good. That's huge for me. I mean, as we were just talking about today, uh, we all started, you know, mucking around with HTML when we were freaking kids building websites. Let me tell you, stuff I built looked bad. 
Stuffed Squarespace makes <laughs> looks so much better. Here, head to squarespace.com slash rocket for a free trial with no credit card required. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code rocket to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. That is squarespace.com slash rocket. And when you decide to sign up, use the offer code rocket to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for rocket. Our thanks to Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. But um bum. All right, how how many of you have been playing Wordle? Woohoo! It's yeah. my favorite game. It's my favorite game. I, I like I like log in like at midnight like every day. Oh my, it's my god! Thing. I love the it. A couple times I've done that have gone poorly for me. But if you are not aware, uh, this year there is a viral website called Wordle, uh, which was created by Josh Wordle uh, for his partner. It is a word game uh, where you are trying to build a five-letter word. It's you lingo. You don't know what it is. It's yes, lingo. It's, I know, but I'm explaining it for okay. people who don't know what no, lingo no. is. Okay, okay. <laughs> you, uh, so you can type in letters, uh, and the app will tell you by color coding, like, is it the right letter in the right place? Is it the right letter but in the wrong place? Is it a letter that's not in the word at all? And eventually your goal is to, within six turns build the word and solve the puzzle uh he made this into a website like i said uh it's free to use no ads and it got super super popular especially after um people started posting the results to twitter because it has this built-in very easy way to share how you did on the puzzle but without spoiling the word uh, which people have shared. You've probably, if you have Twitter, you've probably seen a bunch of colorful blocks all over your feed. Um, that is Wordle. And of course, with that success came App Store Copycats. Uh, earlier this week, several outlets reported on the fact that there were literally apps being sold in the App Store, literally called Wordle, which were not associated with the original website at all. Uh, that is nothing new for the App Store, which has previously uh, dealt or contended with Flappy Bird clones uh, and whether the threes versus 2048 battle uh, in which 2048 was, of course, the copycat. Um, but the, within a couple days, App Store mods took pretty aggressive measures and have removed uh, the Wordle name using clones from the App Store. And this has kind of set off the, the discussion, uh, as Christina said, has been centered around this idea that like, OK, the website was this f completely free, uh, non-ad driven a gift of love for a partner. But it's also uh, a website that a game that mimics the mechanics of the TV show Lingo, uh, which has been around for a super long time and is, I believe, still running um, in, in some countries. It's apparently super popular in the UK. Uh, that being said, the tone of uh, some of the copycats on Twitter has mm. been pretty despicable. Also, to, also to point out, like even if the concept of the game is similar, like these are people who the copycats, like the exact design, like the 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 entire motif yeah. of, of how you do the game, which I think is a little, which I think makes it like different than just like okay, this is the same idea. It's like okay, we're gonna copy the same colors, the same layout, the same formation of of, of the the blocks you share at the end. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go on. No, no, you're totally right. And that that's like what it totally what that's exactly what it hinges on, right? And uh tonally the some of the the conversation from the copycats has been very bad. Uh there's a particular 
a set of tweets that was passed around from a tech op- entrepreneur who created Wordle dash the app, not associated with Wordle, the website, uh, sold that with a free trial and monetary subscriptions that would give users access to unlimited plays and different word lengths. So four to seven letter words. Uh, Wordle, of course, only lets you have that one attempt per day. So six turns, one attempt, and then you're you're done if you if you don't get it. Um, I think what really set people off with that was a particular bragging tweet where he pointed out how many trials and downloads that he was getting said, quote unquote, we're going to the effing moon and showed, of course, pictures of the app in the app store, which clearly said Wordle the app, um, which was frankly a real low. Uh, and, you know, it's just the exact interface of the website itself. Uh, and his uh, rebuttal was essentially, hey, Wordle wasn't trademarked and he thought he might as well, quote unquote, hack something together over the weekend and see if I can make a quick buck, end quote. And that's pretty that's pretty much the state of the conversation right now. I, I personally find it uh, incredibly low to look at someone else's work, even if that work has the same mechanics as an existing TV show and say, wait, maybe I can make money off of that. That to me is unethical. But what what have y'all made of this controversy over Wordle copycats? Well, I'm going to have an unpopular opinion. So, Christina, why don't you go? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. No. I mean, I. I think. I think that it's completely gross. I mean, like, I. I. Um. My. I tweeted. I was like, uh, to just a general good job team to to Andy Bow and Cable Saster and the others who basically put enough focus on the the developer who had ripped it off, like like lock, stock, and barrel, like down to the design, every aspect of it. He completely ripped off and and um, uh, you know, um, calling out those clones um to to the point that Apple did end up removing the clones from the app store, which is very rare and something they, they don't usually do. And, and my, my commentary was that, you know, um, the, the creator gave us something simple and delightful and uh, that when the instinct of so many is blatantly, is to blatantly copy and attempt to monetize that gift, no wonder we have idiots trying to sell plots of land in Fiji on an island <laughs> that doesn't exist. Like that, that, that was kind of my, my hot take is, is that, you know, like I, I totally understand that this is not even before lingo i don't even think it was like a original concept and, and lingo uh chuck woolery's unfortunateness aside it's like one of my favorite shows that i used to like watch the revived version of on, on game show network and like it's a fun game and and i even think i had like lingo games on my um uh iphone like probably 10 years ago yeah. like it's a fun game there are but 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 wordle has been viral in the same way that flappy word went viral um part of it is the social sharing aspect because you see how what the attempts are and you see like how close people got or didn't and you can have mm-hmm. the streaks and the other thing is honestly there is and and this is what i think that the clones have been missing a core component of the game is that you can only play once a day there's yeah. only one puzzle a day and it goes up at at midnight and if you miss it you miss it and and um if uh if you want to play again like you're going to have to pull up another device um that's my personal annoyance like i wish that there that he had some sort of persistent cookie in the app so that i could you know like uh have my my stuff syncing across my my different devices but so that you couldn't do multiple attempts <laughs> totally well cuz the thing is is that once once you know what the what the word is like, you know, you can't really like, I guess you could cheat, but, but then like your, your thing is going to look weird. Cause it's going to be like, Oh, look, I have like basically first attempt every time. As a wise man once said, you're only cheating yourself. 
Yeah, but I'm just saying, like, it doesn't even look like a flex. Like, if you have just a streak of, oh, look, I, I got the uh, all first attempt each time. I mean, come on. Um, then if why I'm gonna would have to- you share it? <laughs> I, well, that's – but, again, that's the whole point. So, anyway, like I said um, – I, I think that the the design and the concept of the original is brilliant. It got this New York Times profile, and, and so we all started playing it because we're all freaking sheep, and, and we 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 play what yeah. we see. And and if the and if the Times you know reports on it, then makes it even better. But like he's not monetizing this at all. He's not doing anything to try to you know make money from this when he could, right? Like mm-hmm. clearly, in most people's instinct would be if they were getting this sort of attention with the virality, even before the Times profile, they would probably figure out some sort of way to, you know, at least put ads on it or at least have some sort of data capture or something, you know, like build in a syncing server so that you could maybe have your account stuff, you know, synced across devices. He's not doing that because that wasn't the goal for him, which I think is beautiful and I really respect. So I'm glad that, uh, that the guys like the jackass who um was going to the moon i'm glad that their stuff was pulled and i'm glad that they're they're that they weren't able to profit off of it especially 30 dollars a year in-app purchase stuff like (laughs) it's predatory and it's gross and uh that that's what i have to say no i think i you know christina when i say this it's not that disagreeing with you because i agree with everything you just said this is not an endeavor i would feel ethically um comfortable doing right like uh, there is joy there's purity here in an industry where you know even the very best video games are ultimately cynical you know companies that are putting something a product out to make money this is really pure right and you see the app store clones coming and it it just feels gross um you know i really share that point of view but I also know that like as a as a history of the video game industry, you cannot copyright a mechanic or an idea. You you just can't. And we would be a really we would be a far worse industry if you could. And the idea itself, it's not that novel. It's, you know, it comes from other things. The implementation of it is really, really brilliant. And you can't, but you can't like patent or trademark and, uh, you know, an implementation of an idea. So when the app store gets involved, I, I just start getting nervous. Now, as far as the name itself, yeah, he didn't trademark it. And I can see Apple making an exception for that. Like something actually called Wordle should probably not exist in the app store. That's very clearly like trying to represent yourself as, as someone else. But my opinion is I don't think games can grow if we kind of say this person owns this idea and then everyone else is kind of ethically obligated to step away from it. I just don't think that's a path for a healthy industry. I agree with that. No, I, I agree with that as well. And I, I see a huge difference between, say, this, which is, as Christina said, taking the UI, from what I can tell, down to the font mm-hmm. and transposing it, name and all, into an app. And something like even um, Ubisoft's Legends Phoenix Rising uh, Greek myth game, which has a lot in common with Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Um, I don't have a problem with the latter, but I have a huge problem with the former. Um, 
and I, I, I essentially, I like the way that we have it in the industry right now where games can become inspired by other mechanics and adapt them into completely new scenarios, um, which is why I totally oppose things like monolith trademarking the nemesis system from the the shadow of mordor series i think that that's really bad for the industry um but something like this where it's just so explicit in the product that there was not an effort to differentiate it or iterate on it at all i don't see that as necessarily comparable to um to the ways in which mechanics evolve um from game to game, which we're accustomed to. Yeah, I mean, and, and for me, to be clear, like, if somebody had come up with, like, if they called it something different, even if they wanted to, because now this the, the the scummy guy is trying to tweet through it, he keeps trying to go on, oh, well, you know, I, I, I've I filed an appeal with Apple because I'll change my game's design, I'll change the name, I'll change all these other things and, and whatnot. And I don't think, you know, I don't think people realize that, you know, I could just still call it something else and just buy, you know, um, uh, search terms for, for, for Wordle. Okay, do whatever you want to do, dude. That's still scummy. Fine. Um, that doesn't change the fact that for me, like the most egregious thing was the fact that it wasn't just the the concept, which I agree, like people are going to build things off of one another. And and I wasn't bothered by most of the Flappy Bird clones because that was the helicopter game and other things that have been before it. But it was a unique, you know, kind of take on that. Um, oh, and, and ironically, you know, that creator had been accused of stealing um art work that he didn't steal at all i mean his thing was completely original um and and uh people uh you know accused him of all kinds of stuff that didn't happen and basically Hmm. you know he was kind of pushed off the internet um and uh because of the the success of his game but um you know the the clones were maybe a little bit like in poor taste but if it was a clone fine but it's like when you copy the name the style the entire design you know, like, you know, you can't call it, you know, Super Wario Brothers, you know what I mean? Like, but if you want to have mm. another, uh, a, like, platformer game, that's fine. For me, the egregious part was that it it would have been one thing if these, like, clones had had an, had an original design. Yeah. And e- even if they, even if the name was the same, and in that case, then I maybe would have had, like, a, a slightly different opinion where I would have been like, okay, if the name is the same, which realize it's not trademarked but whatever but if the name was the same but the design was completely different right like it wasn't using the same colors it wasn't using the same font it didn't have kind of that share mechanism and it maybe it had those other features that you could have where which ruins the game but but for some people they might enjoy where you can try multiple times and you have multiple puzzles and and you could have different word lengths that would be one thing um i i would feel that way the same way i feel about 2048 which is i feel like 2048 sucks and threes is the original and the best but i also feel like 2048 did add its own mechanics its own kind of structure it has mm-hmm. a different design which is inferior um but 2048 can do that well it is it, it's inferior it, i'm it, just it's, laughing it, at it, your it, your <laughs> frankness as usual <laughs> well it, it is it's an inferior design but 2048 to me is completely allowed. Like, I feel like that is, we, we, we can call it a, a ripoff and it is, but it also arguably can still stand on its own and, and introduce its own kind of, um, uh, you know, uh, mechanics and some of its own ways of doing things. So I'm fine with that. What I'm not fine with is taking somebody's name, design, everything full stop, and then packaging it so that you can make, you know, money off of unsuspecting users who hear about Wordle. They search for it in the app store. And then have, you know, no idea that they're now part of this kind of predatory, you know, cloning system. 
Yeah, I think that's dead on. I, I agree a thousand percent with everything you just said. All right. Well, let us move on to today's dessert. Oh, it's so good. I oh, love so this good. one. Oh, God. It's delicious and silly. So uh, raise your hand if you thought that putting DRM in printers might be a bad idea. You're all raising your hands. Amazing. I can see all of you. Global semiconductor shortages have led to Canon needing to ship toner cartridges that don't have their DRM <laughs> chips, which has led to Canon printers not recognizing Canon's own toner cartridges, which has led to said printers locking users out, which has in turn led to Canon telling its enterprise customers how to bypass said DRM. And I'm going to reveal the incredible solution to you right now. They're being told to press close on the <laughs> pop-up that tells you that the toner might malfunction. <laughs> now, according oh. to The Verge, this is, oh. as far as we know, specific to their workplace multifunction printers. So not your at-home model, but it is still very, very funny. <laughs> oh, goodness. DRM is stupid. <laughs> This is, I mean, not all DRM is like inherently bad, but this is on printer ink. It's indefensible. And, you know, thinking about the fact that we have a chip shortage right now and like DRM is like, you think about all the, 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 you know, the resources that have gone into just making your printers, uh, your printer ink more expensive. So like, like Epson can have a slightly better quarter. I mean, it's just disgusting. And I love that this is happening to them. Yes. Punishment. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I remember like five years ago, I remember like HP had this thing where they basically had to apologize for they pushed a software update out to people's printers that would basically prevent them from working with non-HP ink. And it was really gross. And then uh, Cory Doctorow and a bunch of other people like went um, uh, uh, like ham on them. And um, then um, the company basically had to kind of like write an apology. And then like a year later, they had to um, – uh, a year later, they they brought it back. Like they 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 completely like the, the the Gizmodo headline almost a year to the day after like the original one that I wrote. My original headline was um, HP apologizes for busting people's printers on purpose. And then a year later, it was one year after bricking third party ink with update. HP is back on its BS, except it's oh. the actual word. And, wow. and because they were trying to do the same thing, and so you know this is like a a company that like you know like not not a company. This is an industry. That it continues to do this sort of stuff, and it's terrible. And so I do love that this is now biting them in 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 the butt because it is just completely hilarious now that that you know uh, Canon is now being forced to kind of tell them how to break the DRM that they themselves put, they they put themselves in this situation. It's like okay, you had to be Carrick, right? Like we get that this is the the profit center for you is the ink, not the devices. I get that, mm-hmm. but. This is just so anti-consumer and hilarious. And so it's like, it, it's the only good thing of the, shor- of the chip shortage, honestly. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, would you accept this in any other industry? I mean, like Porsche, like I'm trying to imagine a Porsche, like where I couldn't put other wheels on my car, right? Or a cabin filter or an oil filter, unless it was the Porsche official part. I mean, or, Mercedes Mercedes does exist. Mercedes well, buyers that, are like listening and laughing. Yeah, but yeah. Well, fair enough. But I mean, I'm just saying it's so, it's so not in the consumer's best interest. And the thing that's always pissed me off about this is they wrap it in fear. 
Mm-hmm. They wrap this language in fear. This will malfunction. This could damage your device. Right. This, I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's uh, sorry for, it's, it's horse duty. <laughs> it's horse duty. And no, it's just, uh, totally agreed. I mean, and, and look, Apple, uh, one of our favorite companies is totally guilty of this, right? Like they've had for years, like if you were to replace it with like, you know, they, they lost a lawsuit where if you replace certain components with um, things that did not come from them and be like, oh, this this isn't official. Are you sure you want to use this? This might not, you know, work as well. Kind of, you know, scare tactic things. You know, you didn't have your screen replaced by one of our techs, and and blah blah blah. Um, they use a special screw type that now people, you know, repair kits come with with that type of um, um, you know screwdriver, but that is not a common type. You know, they created their own or didn't create, but they popularized you know, the pentalobe, you know, screw type. So these things yeah. are not. Uh, unique just to printers, but I feel like you're right. I feel like with printers, it's particularly egregious because ironically, especially like in an enterprise situation, because in an enterprise situation, Canon's actually making a lot of money. Like they have a whole servicing team who, you know, has kind of a retainer and these companies are presumably buying, you know, a set number of, of, of toners from them a month and also have like service contracts where, you know, technicians will come out and fix these Twenty thirty thousand dollar, you know, machines, um, and uh, because that's that's what some of those things can cost um, new, and then you know they'll last for a really really long time. So it, it's it's hilarious to me that you know even in that environment where you're making so much money on these devices, uh, whether it's through a lease or through a, a direct buyer, whatever the case may be, that they're still putting DRM on the toner in those things. Like even there, they're like, "Yep, we got to squeeze." every penny we can out of this dying business that like it's just so yeah i mean i i delicious i love Mm -hmm. it i love this so much i mean i mean how do you feel christina and simone like i when apple does this like say you know with the the screen or the touch id and they require you know official parts for that i at least feel like it's one of those situations where I understand both sides of it. Like, I think they should sell it to authorized repair shops, but I I can see like requiring the official part in an iPhone because it is a, like the entire idea of an iPhone is security, right? Like that's, that's the main reason I'm still on the platform. So I'm, I'm more sympathetic to it there. Um, I mean, how do you feel about that? I feel like I don't know enough about how these things are made to have a feeling on that. I do. I I know. I feel like on their software side, I, I know they're a bit finicky, but I also appreciate it because maybe I shouldn't have that freedom. But I, I don't I don't know on the hardware side, honestly. What do you think, Christina? Um. So where this was more common was when they started introducing like the secure element with Touch ID. Yeah. And, and in that case. If, if you wanted to actually have like the touch ID sensor thing and, and make that like an official component thing that was tied in a specific way to the software, I understood that argument. I did feel like in some cases the process, and they have had to change this because of a push for, um, of, you know, um, a DIY and like, like repair yourself, um, uh, legislation, which Apple and most of the other big tech companies to be clear are actively fighting against. They are very against right to repair. Um, so they've made changes to their policies in, in an attempt, I think, to try to, uh, shut down that sort of legislation. They have made it so that it is more easy, 
it, it is more conceivable for, for you know, consumers to, to get parts or for repair shops to get parts. I think, though, that for a long time, and, and this is still uh, to the case at some point, like just the process of getting um, parts from Apple was ridiculously like the, the loops you would have to jump through were, were ridiculous, especially if you're talking about like a screen repair or a battery replacement, which were like the two most common things. Right. Um, I, I don't feel like replacing the battery, which is a commodity part um, and, and, and nothing that, you know, a, a, however Apple designs it, I don't care. It is a commodity part and people create like those commodity battery packs. I don't feel like because you go to somebody who um, isn't an Apple person um, on the corner and you pay $50 instead of paying $150, I don't feel like that should make your phone not work. And in fact, like the like Apple had to stop that sort of practice. Um, when it came to things like the, the Touch ID sensor, felt a little bit differently about that, but I still felt like, okay, that, that should be, if you want to have like the integrity of the, of the security of the device, that should obviously be a legitimate component. But at the same time, um, it, it was proven that Apple was making it very, very difficult for people to buy those things. Um, like, uh, the, the, those parts directly, they're making it very, very difficult for people to do that. I mean, that. they put, they put, um, before right to repair in Massachusetts, they put, you know, small Apple repair shops out of business. Exactly. And I think that's deplorable. I think, right. you know, if you're gonna, I, this is how I feel. I feel, feel like touch ID, there is a, a, a fair argument that it is consumer hostile, but there's also a consumer safety issue at play. So I can, I can have empathy for locking that part down. A battery, like you said, hell no, Christina, right. a battery is overwhelmingly a battery. Like you totally. can get into the circuitry of how it works and stuff. Uh, but like uh, that is a part that should absolutely be like a wide open marketplace for it. But if Apple is going to lock down things like the touch ID sensor, they have to, they have to, they have to make those parts available for third-party shops and ordinary users to get and, and and use if they need to like stop people from buying it in bulk so you know someone doesn't like like mass hack these and put them out on mm -hmm. the open market I'm fine with that but I think it's you're really trying to balance like a a kind of tenuous argument for like user benefit like do that in a way where you're really trusting the user on the other side right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I I agree with everything you're saying there. And, 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 you know, Apple has made some changes. Again, they've made the changes, in my opinion, um, because uh, the alternative would be the legislation would pass that would be very much against um, what Apple would want. That That is my opinion. That is not fact, but that is my opinion. Um, and, uh, you know, the uh, iFixit, uh, the EFF, um, uh, Lewis Rossman, who hates me, but who uh, <laughs> uh, he, he does, but um, and, and, and because I misspelled his name and, and argued over a dumb video he made once, whatever, I agree with with his advocacy of, of right to repair for, for sure. Um, but I think that things like this Canon DRM thing actually kind of underscore the importance of right to repair and yeah. and and why we should be thinking more about it. And in and in fact, I mean the interesting thing is that most of the right to repair stuff, you know, you mentioned cars earlier, most of it really comes down to that the biggest advocates for it are people who work in um agriculture, um like uh big machinery stuff, people who have like John Deere tractors and other parts where um, you know, the the cost of those official parts and the the um basically the ridiculous um like 
feats that a lot of the, the manufacturers of that equipment go to to make it more complicated and to introduce other things into the um, uh, the way components work have they've done it specifically to prevent um, people from making their own repairs. It's it's not dissimilar to the the um, you know McDonald's um, ice cream machines the case that we talked about um, uh, last year with the with the various, uh, you know, chips and, and whatnot mm-hmm. that were involved and, and how difficult the software was to understand. Um, so it's, it's one of those things where ironically, like vehicles, I think you could make an argument. I'm not a car, I'm not a car person, but that the move towards, uh, electric vehicles and whatnot is getting even more of that into the, the realm of, okay, well, you can't just take this to any, you know, yeah. mechanic. You, you have to, cars past a certain age, have to go to a certain dealership and have to have certain parts. You know, if you have a Tesla, you realistically have to have that service by someone at Tesla. Um, There's which, a guy which, here in Massachusetts. It's the Rich Rebuilt uh, Tesla channel who's made an entire career out of like hacking Tesla. And he'll go out and get Panasonic batteries and like get a Tesla that was bound for the junkyard where they wanted $20,000 for a battery pack and they were just going to part it out and he can like do it for $4,000, right? And I, I think very strongly consumers should have that option because the alternative is just the this environmental, like, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't do anyone any good to just send a, a perfectly good Tesla except for a shorted out battery pack right. to the yeah. junkyard because Tesla won't support their parts. So, uh, you know, this is going to be, it's like you said, Christian, dead on. This is going to get to be a worse and worse problem. So I I think this is why the ink thing is so, like, yeah. uh, rewarding because the bad guys are losing for once and it's wonderful. Right. It is. And and I think, I, ironically, I mean, depending on how much longer this chip shortage lasts, I mean, this is the sort of thing that could impact other things, right? And so yeah. it's going to have to start I, – I have a feeling like if I were designing a new – electronic component right now. And, uh, you know, so, so I was starting it in 2022, meaning that it probably wasn't going to be released for at least 18 months. I would be thinking really carefully about how, um, tied to a specific part I was and whether or not it could be more, um, upgradable, whether it could be more, you know, like supportable in in, in other ways. I, I would probably personally, like, depending on what I was doing, like it would not necessarily be at your advantage to be designing stuff to only work in this deeply, you know, like integrated system that we've been pushed to over the last 20 some odd years um, be, because of, of, of lots of other reasons. Because if you couldn't get that part, well, then what are you what are you going to do or, or, or how screwed are you? Right. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see if there will be any impact. I feel like I'm probably being too optimistic to think that there would be a positive impact of this and that people would design things to be more open and interoperable and, and more sustainable from a right to repair standpoint. But one can only hope. I just feel like this is not going to be the first time that this we're going to see something like this. And it's going to be interesting to see how these these companies have to, you know, um, either directly help circumvent what the issues are or issue software updates to do it or what or whatnot. Because, you know, if uh, it, it's if you can't get the DRM, if you can't get the chips for the DRM in your your, you know, um, toner, there's going to be some other areas, too, where these these systems that, that they claim are so unbreakable really aren't um, <laughs> mm-hmm. as, as, as long as, uh, you know, when, when push comes to shove, when it comes down to, well, we can sell something or we cannot, you know? Yep. <laughs> it, it's, it's really interesting to see how that works. I was like, oh, no, this is unbeatable. Nothing, nothing can solve this. 
okay, well, actually, just hit the close button, and that ink that you got from someone else, it turns out it's going to be just fine. <laughs> that ink you got from us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In this, in case, this case. In, in, in this case, yeah, right. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, it like, it like, oh, yeah, we, we told you a month ago. We were like, oh, yeah, that, that ink you got from Joe, no, it that's re- going to break your whole thing. It really makes you question just, like, how how much of the interface do we just accept is telling the truth? Mm-hmm. Even when it's not. Um, let's wrap this up for this week. Uh, Brianna, what are you up to? Uh, so I'm sorry because I know you want to wrap it up. I want to tell you guys about something really awesome that I got this week. Um, so on Christmas Day, I get this email that a piece of technology I've been trying to get with the chip shortage is finally back in stock. And it is the DC 10 board for the Mr. FPGA system. Um, If you don't know what Mr. FPGA is, it's basically the same technology with analog, uh, which is a field programmable gate array, basically getting old, uh, old, uh, you know, systems like a Super Nintendo or a Nintendo and emulating the original hardware very, very closely. Uh, the Mr. FPGA project is an open source project that's trying to do that, not just for the common systems like the, uh, the NES and the Super Nintendo, but some really esoteric, uh, systems like the Capcom CPS1, CPS2, and CPS3 boards. These are like some of the greatest games ever made. Darkstalkers is on CPS too. Um, so this is a extremely, extremely, extremely accurate recreation of this. Uh, I finally got it to work. Um, it is amazing. It is a ton of fun. It puts all of my arcade one-up machines to absolute shame. <laughs> they are now garbage, despite all the thousands of dollars I spent on them. Um, it is a really wonderful project. I got mine from Mr. Add-ons, um, and it's sold out again already. But if you love retro games, this is a way to go. And just one more thing. They're about to put out a uh, PlayStation 1 uh, core for this because it's open source. We don't have a great way to play PlayStation games uh, um, outside of original hardware, even today. So I'm really, really excited for this core and being able to use most of my library. That is awesome. Congrats. That's so cool. Christina. Um, so I'm just doing some work stuff. So um, uh, the uh, next episode, the download will be out on Saturday and I'm doing some other um, just kind of stuff uh, that I can't talk about, but some cool things at work. And uh, yeah, that's that's basically it. It is uh, it is not as cold this week as it was last week when we recorded. Thank goodness. So, yeah, but that's basically that's basically it. Just kind of chilling, just kind of doing some work things. Um, uh, gonna, you know, like just it's it's weird it's like it's 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 those it's like that dark january period you know like in, yeah, in, in, yeah in, it's in, that weird time i changed my husband's dead battery in oh. 11 degree weather this oh, morning no. wow. so if it's not that cold in seattle f you because it well, is no, cold it in was boston last week as far as it i was, understand yeah last oh, wow. week it was, yeah last week it was like below freezing um and raining and then there was you know and like we don't handle snow well so for for seattle like last week it was actually colder in seattle when we recorded than it was in new york where simone was and i was incredibly so jealous she was incredibly jealous so now <laughs> it is like it is like mild temperatures like 50 oh, degrees it's fine oh, that's great but but uh but last week it was yeah 
Although not great for one sinuses when like you have like 20 degree fluctuation in temperatures. <laughs> you know, just just putting that well, out there. Yeah, it's, it's all not great. Um, let's see. This week I'm basically just working. Um, I'm going to see Little Shop of Horrors tomorrow and I'm Yay! so excited. I've never seen it live before and I'm super jazzed. Feed me some um, more. Yeah. Oh, wow. I'm pumped. Uh, but just work stuff, regular putting out videos. Uh, hey, Brianna, where can we find you online? You can find me online at uh, Brianna Wu on Twitter. And Christina? Film underscore girl on Twitter and Instagram. And you can find the videos that I do at work at youtube.com slash Microsoft developer. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at doomquasar and at youtube.com slash polygon. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this episode of Rockets. If you liked it, I hope that you will leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do that all-important practice for all the podcasts that you listen to, because we all, we're all desperate for it. And if you have, thank you so, so much. This episode of Rocket is terminated. 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 Terminated.